0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening.
1: So our reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. To the elders and the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Um, and I just pray for Ma- for Monty as he comes up to speak, Lord, that you'll just give him the words to speak and just thank you for this special Sunday and that you'll just teach us how to lead well and be led well. Um, and thank you that we are part of your flock. Amen.
0: Well, good morning, everyone, good morning. and it's good to be back um, on this special day, and just to see all the new things that are happening uh, at the start of the term here in, uh, in, Christ, in Christ City Church. Uh, having been here very early in your time, maybe even one of the first Sundays that you were here, it was just great to see so many things happening. I have to confess, I love the idea of a self-service crash. I mean, you like, like you just go in and pick one, and uh, so long as you scan it on the way out, it'll be okay. Uh, but it is—it's uh, great to, uh, to to be here on this on this special day, and have, uh, knowing Maffie and Steve for a while, uh, knowing uh, uh, Steve for a good bit of the ten years now. Uh, I think he through Christians in Sport, and some of the student work we were doing, and then uh, he got in touch and told me he'd read my thesis. Now, if any, if any of you have done a thesis, and if anyone apart from you or your supervisor has read it, you will know that it's great to hear from somebody who says they've read it. So, uh, it's just been great being part of the journey with, with Christ City Church. And then, Murphy, um, as uh, I think a, a student in my class at IVI, Uh, my preaching class there, a very good student. I have no idea what grade I gave you, but you were a very good student. Um, And just to see how that's developed here for you at at CCC has been great. So uh, a great day. And what can I encourage you with uh, at this time? Uh, So let's see uh, what's coming up. Yeah, good. Good. First, Peter, as you have been looking at, is a letter uh, to the church, uh, to a group of churches, and it's about the church. It's about who we are, it's about why we exist, about what God is asking of us. Uh, Peter speaks here in this final chapter to church leaders directly. Um, But a lot of it applies to not just elders, uh, relevant for today, but for all in leadership and indeed for all disciples. So there's something here, I think, for all of us, not just for Steve and for Matthew and for those who have a role within the church. And Peter shows us, I think, three things in this chapter. He shows us the basis for Christian ministry. Later on, he'll show us something about the character of the Christian leader and then the rewards of Christian ministry. And that's what I want to concentrate on this morning. The first one is that uh, in terms of the basis for Christian ministry is that there is a givenness about our Christian ministry. Shepherd the flock that is under your care. Shepherd them, look after them. You're a flock that's under your care, the one that you've got. Uh, So speaking into a context, there already is a flock. There already are leaders. Um, The one that you have essentially been given by God So often, any of us in leadership or in church might wish that we were part of a different flock, perhaps. Uh, If only I had the staff that they had. If only I didn't have some of the troublesome members that I currently have. If only that person had joined us instead of the church across the city. It's easy to get frustrated with what the Lord has given us. And tragically, to maybe stop loving them, to stop loving one another. Uh, as leaders, you have been given these people. All of us, as you look around here, have been given one another. The church, while it necessarily has spiritual qualifications for membership, you don't get to choose who joins your church in terms of personality or gifting. It's what you have. It's what God has given you. Shepherd them, says Peter, For those of you in leadership, even if even if the attitudes may leave a lot to be desired, even if they keep making mistakes, even if they don't listen, even if they say things that you don't agree with, and even and especially when they sin, love them, shepherd them. If we had it all together, we wouldn't need a shepherd. And even when you as leaders fail them, you're still their shepherd. Might involve asking for forgiveness. It'll involve repentance. It'll involve humility. But it's what we've got. Maffey and Steve and other leaders, you're in ministry because there are sheep that need to be cared for. You're where God has placed you. You're not called to look after somebody else's flock. The people you have, the givenness of that, are the people that God has given you. When I was a music student, I maybe perhaps have used this illustration. Uh, uh, before, maybe at a weekend away, I think, because it's one that I love. When I was a music student, I remember studying a piece by Olivier Messian, the French composer. It was called Le Quartet pour la fin de temps. So, uh, pa- apologies for my French, pardon my French, as they say. Um, uh, the Quartet for the End of Time. And it was for a violin, a cello, a clarinet, and a piano. And nobody had ever written for a violin, a cello, a clarinet, and a piano before. It was written when Messiaen was actually a prisoner of war during the Second World War in a concentration camp and people raved about this piece of music. It got its premiere in the concentration camp and it was a dark, dark, brooding piece, Quartet for the End of Time. And when it eventually, after the war, got its premiere publicly in a concert hall in France, all the critics raved about how this captured the moment. Of the, of the war, <laughs> captured the darkness, the hopelessness, the despair. And they particularly commented on, on Messiaen's genius in choosing those four instruments, a cello, a piano, a clarinet, a, a violin, and their interrelationship just captured this the way no other four instruments could do. And it was an act of genius that nobody had thought of this before. The reality's a little less prosaic. They were the only four instruments that he had in the concentration camp. <laughs> What he did was, he was a musician, he was a composer. He found out what he had and he wrote the score for what he had. He didn't complain that he didn't have a trumpet. Didn't complain, you know, that there was no percussion. We write the score under God's guidance for the instruments we have. There is a givenness and we shepherd the people. It shouldn't really be a surprise that Peter uses this image of the sheep because we would know why it's so precious to him. John chapter 21, Jesus walking on the beach with this friend Peter who had denied him three times. Jesus asks him, do you love me? And each time, what does Jesus say when Peter says yes? He says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then secondly, there's a calling to Christian ministry, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Many struggle with issues of guidance and calling because we begin at the wrong end. We think it only applies to the micro level. Where is God guiding me to live and work? What is he guiding me to do? Who's he guiding me to be with? Well, they might be pretty major issues at the time, but in the big perspective, they're the micro issues. Because you see, alongside the who, who has God called me to be, the where and the what questions are not as significant. The macro issue of calling is that we are called to be children of God, redeemed by Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. The people like Oz Guinness and Stephen Garber have books on this that are very, very helpful about Christian calling. Uh, Stephen Garber's book is called Visions of Vocation. Uh, and it takes us away, and this of course, he's reading into the whole, the whole world situation, not talking about the narrow, uh, so-called full-time ministry vocation. It's whatever you are and wherever you're working is your vocation. Uh, and he says, to be alive on this earth is to be called, to be implicated in the common good of your time and place. To be implicated in the common good of your time and place. And when we are in ministry, uh, in a, if you like, in a, in a focused way, uh, that is ever more important, that we act not out of duty, not because we must, but out of love and because we are willing. We live an integrated life. I was talking just last night that, uh, about this because I think there has been a subtle cultural change uh, uh, in, the last, in the last decade or so. Uh, when I was Growing up, my parents were in in, in Christian ministry, etc., and myself and a lot of my uh, compatriots would have witnessed, if you like, an extreme uh, focus, um, almost um, uh, you know, uh, an obsession, which can often lead to burnout and people completely being consumed by ministry, uh, so that they, 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 you know, they didn't look after themselves or their family, and that got all of. And that was, that was wrong, it was an idolizing of, 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 of their work of ministry. Uh, and so, in my own work with students, we do a lot about self-care, and that's good. But I think there's also been a subtle pendulum swing the other way. And now, what we're having to deal with a little bit are those who treat Christian ministry like a nine-to-five job. And the rest of their time is their own. And going the extra mile, you know, doing something a little bit more unsociable and, and so unsociable hours isn't on the agenda. So we have had to start talking now a lot about the sacrifice in Christian ministry, and it is this balance, isn't it, between sacrifice and sustainability, that we need to find the, the balance of. Um, that we're not professionals. We are not ultimately with apologies to the h r committee here we're not ultimately accountable to the h r processes good though they are we are we, we are sold out for God, and the sustainability comes when we 're able to look after ourselves so that that ministry can continue in the long term. but once we swing to seeing it like any other job or once we swing to seeing it like um as, as, you know, you know that, that, that we're clock watching and that, sorry, I can't help you, it's beyond my hours of work, then, then we have a problem. We are called out of a desire to serve God and serve people. Then there needs to be an integrity about Christian ministry, verses 2 and 3. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There seems to have been the real possibility in the first century Greco-Roman world to be unscrupulous and to do ministry for financial gain, to work for the place that pays the most. Hardly a temptation for eldership or for church planters, you might think, but not impossible. I don't know if you read, there was a a social media post going around a couple of weeks ago, it was in a lot of my feeds, uh, by an American minister who says, I preached my last sermon, Uh, And it was all about why he was leaving not just his church, but the pastorate. And the thing that struck me about that article was that words such as Jesus, calling, Holy Spirit were conspicuous by their absence. It was all about the inadequate pay. It was all about the congregational expectations. It was all about how what he thought he was going into wasn't really what it was and that he has a hundred bosses and nobody can survive with a hundred bosses. Now I'm sitting, sitting thinking, sorry, no, you don't have a hundred bosses. You have one boss. And that the issue of calling is paramount here, you know, and therefore it, um, yes, scripture tells us to make sure that our laborers are worthy of the hire that is reasonable, but you, but you don't go in and you know, gripe about your congregation and, uh, uh, and, and, and to pay as if this was not a calling. And even if our temptation is not for financial gain, we wouldn't be human if we didn't face other temptations of dishonest gain, gaining approval, gaining recognition, wanting to be liked, or accepted, or looked up to, or needed, or popular, or the temptation of status. All of those can be as lacking in integrity as doing ministry for financial gain. So we don't go into it for the wrong reasons, and nor would I say should we leave the ministry or service in the church for the wrong reasons. A good bit of the rest of this passage is about resilience and standing firm. So we don't leave our area of service just because it's difficult or just because we're bored or just because we made a mistake and are embarrassed, or just because a better offer comes along. Yes, there will be seasons when God is moving us from one place to another, or from one area of service to another. But it's about the reasons why we enter and the reasons why we move on. They've got to be because it's what God wants us to be doing. We stay as long as it's clear that God wants us there. We enter and we leave for His reasons, not our own. So a givenness to ministry, a calling to ministry, and the integrity of ministry. And then he moves on to the character of the Christian leader. We'll look at these quite quickly. The leader should always be learning. I think this is what lies behind the emphasis on humility in verses 5 and 6. The instruction of the younger to submit to the elders. The instruction to all of us to clothe ourselves with humility, to humble ourselves under God. Again, it's countercultural. In an ageist culture, the old are discarded in favor of the cult of youth. In the kingdom, however, the young learn from the older. In a narcissistic culture, we clothe ourselves to be noticed and engage in self-promotion where we're at the center. But in the kingdom, we clothe ourselves with humility. Instead of telling God what we think he should do, we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and he will raise us up. Behind all of this, there's a posture of the learner, always learning. Now, the learner is the car you don't want to be behind on the road, it's the sign you don't want to see in the cockpit if you're boarding a plane, or if you're having an operation and the doctor says you're the first one he's done. <laughs> but in the Christian world, learner is a virtue. I remember when I did the Strengths Finder profile, which we use a lot in in, um, in in IFES, and one of the things that came up high. On my strengths finder profile was learner. And I was thinking, come on, I've got three degrees. <laughs> and then I realized actually, it's not about education, it's about posture. And in the kingdom, the posture of learning is one that has to mark a Christian leader. Secondly, the leader is vulnerable. Cast all your anxiety, verse 7, on him because he cares for you. Can any one of us here today claim that we're not anxious about anything? The issue is not whether or not we have anxiety. The issue is what we do with it. So do we store it up inside? Or worse, as too many leaders do, do we take it out on the people that we're meant to be looking after? Those we're meant to be caring for. Too many leaders take out their disappointment and frustration on the congregation. Or do we cast it on him? Why would we not want to do that? Why would we not want to give him our cares and our burdens? Well, I think it's a lesson for all of us. Um, You know, he's the one who cares for us. Self-sufficiency is not compatible with Christian ministry. Vulnerability is essential. And if we don't do that, there's going to be two possible reasons. And they're related to how we think of ourselves and how we think of him. We either think too lowly of God, and we doubt that he can do anything about our problems so we keep them. That questions his power. Or we think too highly of ourselves and we feel that, come on, we should be able to sort this out ourselves. And then that robs us of God's love and touch in our life. When we came to Christ, we gave him all of our sin. That burden was released from us. So why do we start filling up the rucksack again with other burdens and anxieties? Peter says, Be humble enough, be vulnerable enough to hand them over to him because he cares for you. We can't carry our burdens on our own. And thirdly, we can't fight our battles on our own. The Christian leader will always be alert, verses 8 and 9, alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But Peter's quite understated here. The image of the prowling lion and roaring lion looking for its prey is quite terrifying. He does use this image to highlight the reality and seriousness of the spiritual war we're engaged in. He doesn't overplay it. But he just mentions it, that we're facing at times our roaring lion. He doesn't give complicated instructions or battle plans or hyped up pep talks on how to banish Satan with magic words or prayers. He just says, watch out, don't relax. Don't let your guard down. Stay sober, ready to resist him whenever he shows his ugly face. Stand firm, because Satan can get in during the bad times if you're not casting your anxieties on him. Because, verse 9, you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. The Christian leader is not alone in the bad times. There's a global fellowship in the church, Believers suffer the world over. Our troubles are shared by our sisters and brothers everywhere. And there's a solidarity. I'm privileged to witness that in my work with IFES, Global Fellowship of Students. Our World Assembly a few weeks ago in, in, um, uh, in Indonesia, I saw Christians from 175 countries, many of them from sensitive situations, bearing witness and standing in solidarity with one another in situations where it can be a terrible cost. In one country, uh, one of the people who was there when they came to Christ was sequestered in her own bedroom for a year by her family uh, until she gave it up, and she stood firm. Then they let her out into the house, uh, but they didn't allow her outside. Uh, And then they thought that the only way to get this nonsense out of her head was to marry her off. Um, And in the amazing, strange providence of God uh, this woman, from a strict Muslim background, the family found her another Muslim husband, but it turned out that he was actually an atheist. And so God, in his wonderful, strange providence, provided this Christian woman with an atheist so that she would have more freedom to develop her own faith in Christ. And he doesn't, he, he's quite happy for her to practice that because he doesn't believe anything. And to, to witness that testimony and think what it must be like to, to live in that context, which is so different and where the rules are so different for what it means to serve God, is, is phenomenal. It puts our challenges and difficulties into perspective. You're facing trials. The enemy is also attacking our believers everywhere, but don't give in. I remember hearing a, a, an African pastor once say, to you in the West, he says, "Don't compromise on the faith that many of us in the developing world are dying for." No. Is not a challenge when we think of the big issues that we face to be di- a little bit different from the world and the culture. And the word from our in solidarity from our brothers and sisters elsewhere is: "Don't compromise on the very faith for which we are dying." Don't give in. The war has already been won on Calvary. And finally, in this section, the Christian leader will exhibit patience. In general terms, verse 10 puts a time limit on our sufferings. They will last for a little while. In the light of eternity, they will pass. And if in the midst of our troubles, we may be tempted to ask, will this ever be over? Will there ever be an end? Peter says, yes, it is for a little while. Echoing Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So be patient. Because specifically Christian leadership requires patience. Patience with others. Patience with ourselves. And patience to await God's timing. It's always good to look back at the impatient prayers that we have prayed in years gone by and see why God has allowed us to wait. And why perhaps... He knew best after all. And maybe it was good that he didn't answer those prayers in the way that we wanted him to at the time. And as the years go by, let me tell you, that list grows longer. Waiting for God's time is very much intertwined with cultivating that most Christian of virtues, contentment. So some challenging words from Peter, and maybe you could be forgiven for thinking that Peter and I am. I'm just asking you to put on a brave face, suck it up and get on with it. God has you here. He wants you where you are. Be alert and patient. But, but, but no, it's more than that. For every demanding instruction and exhortation, Peter gives us a promise from God. And that's why he also talks back in verse 4 and in verse 10 about the rewards of Christian ministry. In verse 10, we read that the promise that God will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast, or another translation summarizes it. He will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Sometimes the New Testament writers use a series of similar words just to give an effect, and you don't analyze them too much. But I think there is a progression here. When we're in the pit, when we're at rock bottom wondering, is there a way out of this God will restore us and revive us? a revival born out of deep suffering. He will then confirm us in his love and grace, reminding us by his Holy Spirit of our adoption as his children. And this in turn strengthens us for our service. It establishes and roots us in him. It's a progression of increasing security. One that you can trace through the whole book of 1 Peter from being exiles and scattered in chapter one, chapter five, you're restored and established. And these rewards are ours only because of the character and grace of God and of his call on our lives. Why at the beginning does Peter ask us to be shepherds? Because, verse 4, we serve the, the shepherd of shepherds. The chief shepherd. We can only shepherd others because he shepherds us. Our ministry is only, all was simply an outflowing of his ministry. Our ministry is an outflowing of his ministry. Our reward is a crown of glory that will never fade, verse 4. That's simply an image of the beauty of the eternal nature of what we will become in heaven. Elders come and go. Churches come and go. Too many Christian ministers and leaders can be obsessed with legacies And I've seen it kill too many because some pastor or leader somewhere has thought that the best legacy to leave behind is his legacy or her way of doing something or the church that he planted or the ministry she founded. They want to have a legacy and therefore they cripple those who come after them because you're not allowed to question that. Folks, the only thing that will endure for us is the crown of glory of who we are in Christ. Our ministry is not the end in itself. It cannot become an idol. It cannot become our identity. Our calling is so much more than to be an elder. Our calling is so much more than to be in a ministry team in a church. Our calling, ultimately, verse 10, is to share eternal glory with Christ. I began by talking about the givenness of our ministry here and now. So let me end with the promise of a different type of givenness. This crown that we will be given at the end. This crown that affirms our Father's love for us and puts the seal on our ministry. All the voices that might have filled our heads and craved our attention are going to be drowned out by that bigger and louder voice that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's not the hundred voices telling you how this church should be run. It's the one voice that says, be faithful. Walk closely with me. And eventually we'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not something we will only hear if we've been effective leaders. If we are in Christ, it is a given for all of us. The crown and the glory. So may all of you, in whatever capacity you serve in CCC, and today especially, may you, Steve and Maffey, wear that crown now symbolically with humble gratitude and then share eventually when he comes in the glory that Christ has promised. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we look forward to sharing around the table of our Lord and commissioning Steve and Maffie, we do so acknowledging that we are a fellowship, that we are a community, that we are a family and that this is something in which we all have a part. So may you speak to us through what Peter has said in your word about what it means to know our calling, to be content with what we have been given and to by your spirit show the integrity that you ask for in all of your leaders. In Jesus' name, amen.